invite you to turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 6 as we take up a study of that sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. I'd like to read about spiritual battle in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 at verse 10 and reading down through verse 20, we listen to the holy word of a holy God. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus at verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. God's word. Let's turn from the scriptures to the church's confession and the forms and prayers book found on page 257. 257 in the Forms and Prayers book. And I'll read question 127 and then let's recite the answer together. Question 127, what does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Should we bow before God and ask for his help? Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But in repenting of our sins and seeking your grace, we ask for your help. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger, quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you. 
with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. Well, people of God, we come then tonight to this final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Remember, there are six requests, and we come to this last one in which we pray that God would deliver us in the midst of this spiritual battle. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, if we've been working at this for some time, as we have, we might be tempted to think that, that now maybe this last one we don't need so much. We've got five requests already to pray. We, we've learned a bit about prayer again. We've reviewed that, and we might think of dozing off a bit and think, you know, do I really need one more petition? Do I need one more arrow in my quiver? But if we're feeling that way, the very reading of Ephesians 6 should maybe awaken us a bit as the Apostle Paul st- speaks of our, our enemy here, and as he speaks so often of standing. Did you notice that? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then twice in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And then verse 14, a fourth time, stand therefore, having your, girded your waist with truth. And we might, upon reading four calls to stand, wonder, is it really that difficult? I mean, how hard is it to stand on our own two feet? We often think it's not such a big deal. Sinclair Ferguson, in his little commentary on Ephesians, which I make generous and grateful use of, Tonight, and you'll see that I got some quotes for you from him. But, but as a little, uh, it's a banner of truth. Let's study Ephesians, and all those commentaries I think are pretty good. But this one on Ephesians is great if you want to look at it. But he writes early on in the Christian life, early on in the Christian life, we might think that to stand in the spiritual warfare is a relatively insignificant achievement. But the more we read the New Testament, And the longer we experience the pressure of spiritual warfare, the more clearly we will see that to remain standing after all the heat of battle is the result of a work of supernatural grace in us. We find that, don't we? We find it by experience. Just when we think we're standing strong, we stumble. And so we learn that over and over again. And we learn it even more so from the scriptures as we see as we see who our enemy is, as we see saints stumbling and falling, as we see all the pernicious ways in which our enemies are at work, to make it to the end, brothers and sisters, to persevere to the end is nothing less than a miracle of grace, God keeping his people. Do we need this last petition Jesus gives us? Indeed, more than we even know. Let's look tonight at this soldier's prayer, this prayer for battle. This prayer signals three things. First of all, that hostile forces are present. Secondly, that huge resources are available. And finally, that humble communication with God is necessary for victory. First of all, hostile forces are present. The the petition itself is is a bit of mystery to some people, right? When When we're taught by Jesus to pray, lead us not into temptation, then some ask, well, why should we pray that? Does God lead us into temptation? And the answer that James tells us is no. If you're tempted, James says, don't say God's tempting me because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Well, then why the petition? 
Well, God doesn't tempt us, but he does test us. And God, in testing us, does allow us to be tempted. God allowed Job to be tempted severely by the evil one. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And so we see that, that circumstances that from God's side are tests to, to try our faith, to prove our faith, to strengthen our faith, are from Satan's side assaults designed to destroy our faith, to ruin us. So Jesus is teaching us in the sixth petition to pray that God would grant us to avoid temptation, or if in the testing of our faith for the glory of God and for our good we need to be tested, then that God would uphold us because we're so weak and our enemies are so strong. We're involved in a battle, whether we like it or not. We've been delivered from Satan, and because of that, we are the opposition. We were plundered from Satan's house and made Christ's people, and because of that, a target is painted on us, and Satan despises us. Remember already in Genesis 3.15, it was God who set the battle line as he brought Adam and Eve back to his side and established the antithesis between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of serpent, and he put hostility there between them, and God perpetuates this conflict down throughout history. So we're in a conflict zone. And if we think that things will just sort of mellow out over time, Ferguson reminded me that the devil who appears as a serpent in the garden appears as a dragon at the end of the book in Revelation. His ferocity does not diminish, but he grows in rage, it seems. As one writer puts it, he aims to kill us, Satan does. He aims to kill us in a sometimes violent, sometimes subtle, but always incessant battle. So to pray the prayer, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. You have to believe what the Bible says about the situation you're in. Children may play with fire or play in the street because they're oblivious to the danger. But believers are to be convinced of the seriousness of the situation. We have three sworn enemies we confess tonight. The devil, the world, and our own flesh. And these are real enemies that have sworn to seek our eternal destruction. And as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, God says you need to, you need to know your enemy. You need to do reconnaissance. You, you need to seek to uncover who he is, how strong he is, what his weapons are, where his ambushes are. Well, Satan hates you, and he seeks to destroy you. So we should know who Satan is. We, we should not overestimate Satan. Satan is not divine. Satan is not God. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not everywhere present. But we should not underestimate Satan either. Satan is not a mere human like us. He's powerful, very, very powerful. Dr. Joel Beakey, in his book on fighting Satan, has this quote of John Blanchard, who writes, We are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfit the strongest, and outwit the wisest. Think about that. The devil is very experienced. I mean, we, we come into this world and we're, we're learning who he is and how to fight, but Satan's been at this quite a while, don't you think? Since the Garden of Eden. 
He's watched countless thousands stumble and fall. He, he knows our weaknesses. He knows the game. Satan knows how we think and act and stumble and fall. He hates Christ and he hates us. He's organized. He has demons at work with him and for him. He's sneaky. He's scheming. He's patient. Puritan William Bridge is cited, who said, Satan will tell us a hundred true things in order to get us to listen to the one hundred and first thing, which he says, the lie by which he traps us. Satan is patient. Satan loves the lie, right? Satan loves to persuade people that there is no God, or he loves to slander God's name as he did to Adam and Eve and convince you that God doesn't love you, God is not treating you right. He loves to paint a deceptive picture of what life would be like without God's laws. You'd be so happy. You'd be so free. It would be such a delightful life if you didn't follow God's ways. Or Satan loves to accuse, to convince you that you aren't forgiven and you can't be forgiven. He wants to lead people into despair and hopelessness. In the midst of temptation or the battle against besetting sins or addictions, Satan loves to tell you that, you're not going to get out of this. You know, why, why hold off against that, that temptation, that addiction any longer? You know you're going to cave. Might as well do it right now. Satan's a liar. He has lots of techniques. Intimidation, accusation, deception, seduction. Sinclair Ferguson writes, he possesses supernatural power. Christians do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are not engaged in conflict management here. This is a personal, personal contest to the death against the one who has brought down a third of the stars of heaven with a sweep of his tail, Revelation 12, and has wounded such children of God as Adam, Noah, Moses, David, Peter, and a vast multitude of others. How foolish I would be to think that I alone am exempt from his attacks or immune to his power. And yet it's one of Satan's ploys, isn't it? To make you think that he's harmless. He's just the thing of cartoons and comic books. Dr. Joel Beakey cites a study that found that among those who call themselves Christians, half of them believe that Satan is a symbol, a symbol and not a living being. Among half of those who call themselves Christians, they don't believe in Satan. Oh, that's a, a pretty good work of the devil, isn't it? The devil loves to seek to steal the word of God from us, and he loves to steal us from the fellowship of God's people. And being here tonight is, it is an act of defiance, isn't it? When we sit beneath God's word and when we gather with the saints of God, we are seeking to guard our souls. So we've got the devil against us. We also have the world against us. The world is our enemy. When the Bible speaks of the world, it, it doesn't mean, you know, creation or this earth as if there's this power and matter that seeks to destroy us. In the Bible, when it speaks of the world in negative terms, it's talking about worldly principles that are hostile to God. It's talking about worldviews and desires and attitudes and ambitions that are in sinful human hearts that are hostile to God's ways. That world is dangerous. That world has persecuted and destroyed Christians' bodies. That world seeks to seduce and lead astray. 
And that world is an agent of the devil. Worldliness can be found in bad movies and bad music, but worldliness can be found in the church when there is the breaking of unity or a party spirit or sectarianism. As 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells the Corinthians who are divided, one of Paul, another of Apollos, that they are carnal, they are fleshly, they are worldly. Pride is worldliness. But then we have the third enemy, the flesh. And this is why temptation is so dangerous, because of that third enemy, the flesh. Because as Satan and the world come against the castle of our soul, there's actually a traitor inside the castle that loves to open the door and let him in. Our old nature. The remain of that old nature, defeated but still present, deceitful, untrustworthy, full of poisonous passions and desires, and waiting for an opportunity. The sinful nature is like a sleeper cell. You know what a sleeper cell is? It's, it's those foreign actors that embed themselves in a society, right? And they, they appear inconspicuous. They, they just go about life like everyone else. No one's afraid of them, but, but they're just waiting for the signal, to strike, waiting to be activated. So this is the battle line. And these are our enemies, the devil, the world, and our flesh. And you know, when we think on these things, and when we maybe read books about spiritual battle, then we're, we're waiting to see these great star wars and these cosmic conflicts. But where's the battle? Where's the battle really taking place? Listen to these words of Dr. Ferguson. He writes, But far from being ethereal and mystical, the regular context of the battle is in the ordinary routines of daily life. Battles at Ephesus. Wherever grace brings advance and victory, attacks will come. It is in the ordinary progress of sanctification that the devil seeks to defeat us. It is in daily routines that we need to make sure he gains no foothold. Mundane life, not just mountaintop experience, is the sphere in which Satan appears. We need to be conscious of his stratagems. And then he says, he explains why he's saying this. He says this is, this is brought out remarkably in the context of Ephesians 6 verse 10 because Paul has just been discussing marriage, right? At the end of Ephesians 5 there, husbands and wives. And at the beginning of chapter 6, children obey your parents. Fathers train up your children. He's just been discussing marriage, family life, and everyday employment. This was where Satan first successfully attacked. It was not when Adam and Eve were attempting extraordinary spiritual work for God, but when everything seemed mundane, that Satan tracked them down and tripped them up. In fact, their marriage, which was the best of all God's basic provisions for them, became the strongest instrument Satan could use to set them at odds against God and each other. It is in marriage, parent-child relations, and in the daily working world that we need to recognize we are not dealing merely with flesh and blood. Isn't that insightful? Somehow we take a turn, don't we, as we read Ephesians. We, we look at all this working out of the daily 
usual life, husbands and wives and children and parents and and working for the Lord and not for men. And then we, we come to this section about spiritual battle and our eyes glaze over. And we're looking for these, these, these flashes of lightning and these lightsabers and spaceships. Are... No, Satan, these hostile forces are at work. Tomorrow morning when you get up, and the first words you speak to your wife or husband, Satan would love to ruin it right there. Satan's at work, boys and girls. And tonight, when your mom or dad says, go get your PJs on and get ready for bed, right there. This is where the spiritual battle is. But Satan's power is broken because Jesus Christ has come. He was an obedient child. He was a faithful husband to his bride. Jesus wrestled against temptation in the wilderness and overcame Satan. Jesus wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, taking Adam and Eve's place. And he overcame and won the victory for us. He withstood the devil and he conquered temptation. And at the cross, he defeated the accuser. And so Satan was cast out of heaven. And so Satan's power is broken, but it's not over yet. He's cast down to the earth where he rages against the church. And so we need the resources God provides. That's our second point tonight. Not just hostile forces that are present. The sixth petition alerts us to that. But the sixth petition is reminding us there's huge resources that are accessible to us through prayer. Let's look at that secondly. We pray according to the catechism here. Since we're so weak, our enemies are so strong, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may not be defeated in the spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. So we're not called to be strong in ourselves, are we? That's not the point. It's exactly not the point called to be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6 makes that point. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Well, since we're not fighting against flesh and blood, material resources are inadequate for us. Money, martial arts, machetes, muscles, they won't do it in this battle. But the Bible gives constant testimony to God's power. He created this world, right? He parted the Red Sea. He made Mount Sinai tremble. He turned back the Jordan River. He drove out the Canaanites. And as you read through God's word, God's power is not some abstract force, but it's precisely the power of the Almighty God who is our Father for Christ's sake, And it's the power that's on display in saving his people. In Ephesians 1 verse 20, it's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 2 verse 5, it's that we were dead in sin and God made us alive. That's the power that we're talking about. It's God's power in Christ, which is accessible to us through our Savior, given to us by the Spirit, and is infinitely superior to Satan's power. Satan is not Jesus' brother. Satan is not some equally eternal opposite of God. There's not good and bad in the world. 
that have always been from eternity. There's one God, and he's good. And Satan is a creature made good, turned evil. He is not equally ultimate. He's a creature. God is not a creature. God is divine. God's eternal. God's invisible. God's immutable. God is self-sustaining. God has life in himself. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere present. We need to be convinced that the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. We should not underestimate Satan. That's deadly. But we should not overestimate Satan. Our God is greater. And that gives us confidence. But it's not to make us lackadaisical, apathetic, or careless. Because God saves us, he preserves us by causing us to persevere, right? God preserves us by calling us to perseverance and equipping us for that. God gives us power for the fight. God gives us armor for the fight. We are not to pray the six petitions saying, Lord, take care of me while I lie down here on the battlefield. Salvation is promised to those who are overcomers, to those who press on. And so we pray that God be pleased to strengthen us, uphold and make us strong by your spirit, that we may not be defeated in the spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. It's a fight, fight, fight to the end, right? I was perusing John Calvin's, not his commentary, but his sermons on Ephesians. He has these words, which if you think you're not young anymore, you might appreciate. He says that the believer must hold on his way to the end and put into practice what St. Paul shows us in another place, even by his own example. For although he had done such notable things that a man might well say God ought to have let him quit the field and given him some rest from his frequent fightings, both by sea and by land in a variety of ways, nevertheless, he says, Paul says, that he forgets all that is past and strives and still presses forward until he attains to the fellowship of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. For what causes a number to take such great liberty, except that they imagine that they have done enough and that others can very well come forward to take their turn? Why not, they say. For twenty or thirty years I have kept on, and I have worked unceasingly, The world has seen my faithfulness and the zeal and care with which I have served God and my diligence in doing that which my charge required. And upon this they conclude that they may take a well-earned rest. Calvin says, no, we must not deal thus with God, but whatever we have done, we must forget that which is behind and look forward to what is yet to come. That is to say, we are not yet come to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's hard, isn't it, to stick with it to the end. Many of you have served the Lord for many years. And we say sometimes, I deserve a break. I've done my part. 
But there's no rest in the Christian battle until you see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fight to the end. A fight to the very end. And sometimes the greatest battles come in the very last years, don't they? And even at that last moment of death, still to cling to the promises, to cry out to God, to rest on nothing we have done, but to pray, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me in this final battle of death. Well, how will God deliver us? The Apostle Paul is putting on display the riches of God's resources here. We shouldn't get too particular with all these armor pieces. We might be led astray. He's trying to show us, I think, the completeness of the resources that we have. There are protective coverings. Put it on. You'll need it. Don't be a proud soldier and think you can do without it. Don't pray for a chariot to swoop down from heaven and take you away, but pray for God to clothe you for the battle. He says first, boys and girls, to put on a belt of truth, a belt that soldiers wore, went around their clothing, and to it was often fastened maybe the sword and the breastplate, and so it kept everything in place. belt is most basic. And here it's the belt of truth or sincerity. You can't fight the evil one if you're a hypocrite, if you're just playing games or wearing a mask. The belt of truth means I'm in the battle for real. God, I really want to fight. I'm really devoted to your cause. We need that. And then he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, that piece of armor that covered from the neck to the thighs. Righteousness here is probably obedience, right? Living. It would be silly to pray for God to protect us while we willingly live in sin. Ridiculous to pray for God to lead us not into temptation while we keep throwing ourselves in the middle of temptation. Andrew Kivenhoven writes, The sincerity of our prayers is always evident in our style of living. That holds when we pray for the glory of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, or the doing of his will. To pray for bread without sowing is insincere. To ask for forgiveness without being gracious does not make sense. Neither does it make sense to pray that we be kept from temptations while we flirt with the devil. But then he speaks of the right shoes here, doesn't it? The apostle speaks of your having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We know that in sports, it's really kind of a fascinating thing, that in sports you, you need a different pair of shoes for every sport, right? You don't, you don't wear football cleats on the basketball court. You don't wear basketball shoes on the, on the football field. It just doesn't work. Maybe mothers at first can't comprehend how you need a different pair of shoes for everything you do. But, but once you start playing the sports, it becomes pretty obvious to you. Can't do without it. You need it in order to get traction, in order to run quickly. William Hendrickson speaks of the fact that Roman soldiers, according to Josephus, the early historian, that the Roman soldiers were in the habit of 
putting on shoes thickly studded with sharp nails. And William Hendrickson says, Thus, one important reason for Julius Caesar's success as a general was the fact that his men wore military shoes that made it possible for them to cover long distances in short periods that again and again the enemies were caught off guard. In the victories won by Alexander the Great, the same factor played an important role. I never studied the shoes, I guess. Alexander the Great's troops won, but he struck with lightning speed, right, and conquered the world. We need, we need what kind of shoes? We need feet that are fitted with the gospel of peace. One translation says feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. If you try to fight the devil with a guilty conscience, it's like wearing a pair of boots that has mud stuck to them and you're walking through more mud. It keeps getting stuck and it becomes so heavy you can't hardly maneuver. In order to have traction in this battle, in order to be able to move quickly, you need to be rooted in the gospel. You need a conscience that's clear before God. You need to keep short account with your God and and ask for forgiveness daily and to live in that peace that passes all understanding so that Satan doesn't get a foothold on you, but you get a foothold on him, as it were. If we're not getting traction in our Christian life, we might ask ourselves if we're living in the gospel. If we don't have a grip on the battle, do we have a grip on the gospel? But then Paul talks about the shield of faith with which you can extinguish those flaming arrows of the evil one. Some of those shields, large shields, four feet by two and a half feet, small doors. Some were covered with leather. They soaked in water to put out the flaming arrows. And our shield is that of faith instead of believing the word of God. Satan will come with darts, fiery darts, arrows. And the way to extinguish them is to believe what God has spoken. To say to yourself, that is not so, Satan. Martin Luther has lots of good lines along that, right? Talking about the devil attacking him. Satan saying all these things Martin Luther has done, to which Martin Luther says, yes, and I've done worse. Add them up, write them down, list them all up. And over it all, I'll declare that Jesus Christ has paid for them. We need to believe the word. We need to believe together. Sometimes in ancient warfare, you know, the troops stood closely knit together and formed a great barricade by their shields or even put the shields over top of themselves and became an impenetrable complex or fortress together. Paul's writing to a church It needs to stand together. Philippians 1, only let me hear that you stand fast in one spirit, contending together for the face of the gospel. And that's the idea, right? That by believing, we shield ourselves, but we also shield each other, don't we? We're to stand close to each other, each holding our shield, each believing, so Satan has no way of getting in. And then he speaks of the helmet of salvation. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, a weapon that Christ wielded so wonderfully in his temptations, didn't he? Satan came trying to use the Word of God in a perverted way, and that's how Satan works. I looked up that website the lady wrote in the letter I mentioned this morning, the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses website, filled with Scripture to prove there's no trinity, 
to prove that Jesus is not the Son of God eternally. Filled with Scripture. Those are Satan's ways, but we take up the Word of God with the right way. We study the Word, we believe the Word, we use the Word that we might defend ourselves against the evil one. Christ has proven, you see, the reliability of this armor. It's battle-tested. It's ready to go. Call upon him, Lord, clothe me with this armor. Grant me grace to put it on. Make it profitable. And that brings us to the final thing. We need humble communication with God to the very end. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Ends with a call to prayer here, right? The way we we put on the armor, the way we use the armor is the way of calling upon the Lord. Troops in the battle, you know, the radio is, is a tremendous weapon, isn't it? Nobody in the midst of battle makes fun of the, the guy who's the the tech geek, right? You got somebody that knows how to wield the radio, that's what you want, right? He can call in for supplies, he can call in for airstrikes. But when the communication is broken and troops are on their own now with no additional resources, it gets dangerous. Christ doesn't fit us for battle with this armor and then send us off and say, I hope you make it back. He says, keep the radio handy. Pray always. Failure to pray means we've underestimated our enemies or we've overestimated ourselves. But if we know the hostility of the enemies and if we know how badly we need the resources, then we pray. Always, all the time, to the God who loves us deeply, who gave his own son to die for our sin, who gave the blood of his own beloved to cover our sins so we could have peace with him and be assured that he's not against us but for us and will deliver us. We're to pray, the apostle says, in the spirit. What does it mean to pray in the spirit? means we're to keep in step with the Spirit. We're to, to submit our minds to the Word of the Spirit. We're to pray for the things the Spirit has told us to pray for. And that's why we've been studying the Lord's Prayer, right? To learn what we ought to pray for. Jesus gave us the model prayer so we could pray in the Spirit. We can pray in faith. And the Apostle says to keep alert. Being watchful to this end. What did Jesus say on that critical night to his disciples? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The disciples' failure to heed that word brought devastating consequences. They were scattered. And Peter denied Jesus three times. Pray and watch. So it's a humbling test, isn't it, to ask ourselves once in a while, how much have I prayed for spiritual protection? If we see days just fly by, maybe weeks go by, and we've never, with any true sincerity or earnestness, said, God, please save me, please protect me. Then we're not very alert, are we? And if we love our salvation... If we believe what God has told us about our enemy, then we pray. And not just for ourselves, but the apostle says, supplication for all the saints. 
And so we're reminded, aren't we, that the Lord's Prayer is a communal prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us. Because we're not on our own. In the end, it's not a soldier's prayer, but it's an army's prayer. It's the prayer of the congregation of Christ given to us by the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to pray for each other. And we're to pray for our spiritual leaders. Even the Apostle Paul says that you should pray, verse 19, and for me, not just for all the saints, but and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That's important. Preachers need prayers too more than they know it. I humbly thank you and ask you for your prayers. I might be a faithful servant of the Lord, guarded from temptation, diligent in the study of God's word. Ferguson reminded me of this quote of the famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon when he was once asked, given his great influence, he was asked, what's the secret of your ministry? To which he replied, my people pray for me. My people pray for me. Preachers need prayers. Elders need prayers. They need your prayers to stand firm. Deacons need your prayers. They need your prayers to to have a wise and benevolent heart. Fathers and mothers, children, they need your prayers. Fathers and mothers, your children need your prayers. Grandparents, your grandchildren need your prayers. This is what God has promised to use. Until that day that we win a complete victory. We don't fight in vain. No matter what Satan says, his end has already been determined. Soon and very soon, cast into the lake of fire. Soon and very soon, Christ's people crowned with glory and honor and vindicated before the world. The day is coming. The battle's not forever. But until then, watch and pray. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this summons of your word to give ourselves to the battle, to know our weakness, to know the greatness of the enemy, but to know the even greater power of our God and his love for us through Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil and from the evil one. And Father, we acknowledge that without your preserving grace, our lives are lost forever. But that you are the God who began the good work in us and will carry it on to the day of completion. That he who called us is faithful and he will do it. So God, give us the grace to be overcomers. And to know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. God, guard us and keep us. Amen.